Welcome back to Hit Subscribe, where we chat with key leaders in the e-commerce space to discuss the present and future state of commerce optimization. I'm your host, Chase Alderton, Senior Partner and Field Marketing Manager at Recharge. If the ultimate goal of a business is to make money, then why do so many business owners focus on the metrics that mostly contribute to the ultimate goal? So many conversations I hear daily are about lifetime value is the only metric that matters, or if your average order value is strong, then so is your business. While those statements might not be wrong, they just might not be telling you the whole story. Conversion rate is another one of those metrics. Yes, business owners want to ensure their website, their advertisements, their emails convert to dollars, but are too many merchants optimizing for the conversion, not the revenue? Once you understand how learning happens through psychology and human performance, then you can control the inputs. Once you've identified the inputs, you can test and experiment the frequency and intensity of those inputs. And once you've optimized all those pieces, now you're looking at a functional conversion rate optimization program with the focus on revenue generation, not vanity metrics. On this episode, we talk with Yassine and Yusuf Shirbaji, co-founders and managing partners at PrismFly. Yassine and Yusuf, welcome. Thanks, Chase. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and tell us about PrismFly. Yassine, why don't you hop in first? Yeah, thanks. So. PrismFly is an e-commerce growth consultancy that specializes in maximizing profitability through website experimentation. We pair that strategy with best-in-class execution across UX UI design and development to create leading digital experiences. So I am a co-founder and managing partner, and I mostly oversee business development. So it's my job to figure out who is right for our services, but probably more importantly, who is not right for our services so that we can deliver really good results. Definitely. And I'm uh, the other co-founder here, Yusuf, and I am sort of in charge of overseeing the amazing team that we have and making sure that the strategy development and design that we're doing is top-notch and is improving performance for clients. And then also kind of keeping an eye on the market and making sure that we're looking out for different changes like AI and ChatGPT and making sure that we're you know, finding ways to incorporate things like that in overall growth strategy for our clients and merchants. Awesome. Appreciate the interest. So before we kick off, uh, I wanted to shoot a quick congratulations. You two are the first repeat episodes for Hit Subscribe. So we're pumped to have you back. (laughs) We're going for the repeat. repeat. Okay. We'll see what we can do next year. We'll see if we can do a a three in a row. We'll make you a belt or something. Cool. Today's episode is going to be focused on really experimentation, conversion rate optimization, you seen you and I were joking the other day that there are, you know, acronyms and words for, you know, everything changes all the time about how you describe this stuff. So however you want to define it, we'll get there eventually. But we're talking conversions. We're talking about what works, what doesn't, how to optimize, things like that. So I know we want to start with kind of the basis of psychology. It's a topic that I love my degrees in psychology. I don't explicitly use it, but I love talking about it. So set the stage for us. What does learning look like? How do you define learning? Just talk about kind of how you're, you take a psychological approach to your builds. It's a really good question, Chase. So to improve performance, you first have to realize that none of us really know anything. It was Socrates that said, I know that I'm intelligent because I know that I know nothing. Basically, what he was describing is a test and learn mindset. The idea that try your best to come up with a good hypothesis, put something out in the world, and then just see what happens. No different than if I accidentally you know, put my hand on the oven and it burnt my hand, I'm probably not going to do that again, right? And so 
all Prismify does is really focuses on an iterative methodology to improve websites to actually increase that conversion rate and AOV. And you can find that iterative methodology across all kinds of services. So it exists across paid media. It also exists across lifecycle marketing. You think about a Facebook ads platform and Klaviyo, all they really are is advanced segmentation tools. And so people are so bought into that concept across driving traffic and lifecycle marketing, but people haven't gone the distance yet, at least we believe fully, in iterating the website itself. And we think that that is a big missed opportunity and that there's a lot of compelling unit economics as to how that can actually help improve a brand. I think it's it's a really interesting point. I'm a big basketball fan. I think it was Greg Popovich, coach of the Spurs, who was saying that every conceptual crazy idea that happens is just a bunch of smaller ideas stacked up on top of each other. So I love that that you're saying kind of like, it's not anything crazy or unique or, or weird that we're doing. It's, you know, segmentation. It's trying to find the right audiences. It's a bunch of simple things. You just do it really intelligently, stack everything up, and then you end up with this awesome product. Exactly. Sometimes growth can be daunting when you step back and you try to look at it from a lens of how do I achieve growth versus what are all the ways I can achieve growth and then prioritizing them. Sort of like backing your way into that, kind of like, backing your way into like a budget with how you save money. It's the same way. It's easy when you break it down into its parts. And that's really what we try to focus on is like, how do we get really, really good about breaking optimization and growth into like the little parts that really efficient at those. So we can just do it really, really quickly. So then in order to improve performance, there has to be obviously some base level of performance. How do you define performance, which feels like a really generic question, but like, how do you how do you define your baseline? How do you figure out what that is? That's a good question, Jason. I, I think it depends on the brand and their goal. So for us, most of our clients are e-commerce merchants. They're pushing people to website to buy kind of classic products. So for them, it's not just conversion rate, but it's actually revenue per customer. So it's this idea that Maybe I want one person giving me a million dollars instead of 10 people each giving me a hundred bucks. There's a balance between those two metrics for most of our clients. But do consider, right, what if it's a one product store? It might very well be conversion rate is the North Star. But, you know, what if it's a store that, you know, has a repeatable component to it, right? We might be very focused on that repeat purchase just as much. And so in the end of the day, what we care about more than anything is lifetime value. And it's important to realize the best thing for your conversion rate could be just to make your stuff free. And so conversion rate as a metric alone doesn't tell the full story. What we really care about is lifetime value. So let's take it a step further. Define lifetime value for me. B equals MC squared. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was Socrates as well, I believe. Yeah, it's a great question. And it really depends on how you're defining LTV. And so there's a lot of components, you know, obviously there's different definitions you can find online that are relevant to e-commerce that I would definitely reference before I try to give one live. That said, it depends on a lot of factors like the time frame that someone's going to be with you, how much they might spend, what churn looks like for your business, and the nature of the products that you're selling, whether those are things that are going to last a year, three years, or just a couple of weeks and how frequently someone might come back. And so what we see a lot of brands do currently is they're looking at metrics like ROAS or return on advertising spend, which is often really helpful to figure out what your immediate purchase looks like, but it might ignore what the long-term value you could be receiving from a customer. Because sometimes someone might purchase with you once, but does that mean that that experience is good enough to get them back the second time? 
So a lot of times what we're doing is we're not only looking at that immediate conversion, but we're trying to say, hey, is there a scenario where this customer is now not going to come back because of a poor experience? So we want to make sure that ultimately every experience leads to a repeat purchase. That's kind of the, the North Star, if you will, that every, every business needs to opt for. And there's a lot of businesses that have found that sometimes when they sacrifice a percentage of revenue up front, they will often make that up tenfold in value. And so prime example is subscription. You might not get as many customers to subscribe to your product as would purchase it one time, but the lifetime value you're going to achieve from customers subscribing to the convenience of having it redelivered that's typically going to have a drastic increase on your LTV. So we push clients toward finding those types of opportunities as much as we can, and then partnering with tools that help us unlock that in a way that it doesn't require you to go and be Einstein and come up with you know all the complex algorithms and tracking in order to be able to do that yourself. I think that this all boils down to a very simple point, which is the quality of your product and service, how easy it is to buy it. And if all of that is in check, you start to have a lot of confidence as a business owner. And we've seen a lot of brands, for example, that sell supplements that might totally give away samples of their product or the product itself for free, because that is a cheaper way to get somebody bought into the life cycle of doing business with them. Like quite literally giving somebody a free product is cheaper than kind of the classic advertising spend to try to get somebody cold to buy it first time. And so if you know that repeat purchase rate is good, you're almost willing to give up that eight bucks, that 10 bucks, that 20 bucks up front, uh, knowing that that customer is going to be retained with you for life. But that's only possible if you're really confident in your product or service. So I think a lot of people sometimes think really hard about this stuff, but it's, it's as easy as taking a big step back and really narrowing in and being introspective on how how awesome your product or service is. Yeah, there's some really cool tests that you can even run with that, where it's like, let's say for half of your purchasers, you just throw in a free sample, and then you see if that cohort is more likely to come back and purchase that product on a second order. So sometimes, you know, you might have to wait in order to get that data back, and you might even need some help to pull that data. But little simple things like that are an easy way to say like, hey, does that sample, is that worth it, right? Is that cheaper than then my cat would be to acquire a customer to purchase this new product line I just launched. I think supplements is a really good example for this because it's super easy to add something like, you know, here's a free sample of, a, of like a protein powder, or here's a few free sample of a week's worth of vitamins. Try these and see how you feel. And I think it is a really easy way to then determine if you're splitting that 50-50 for your subscribers or for your one-time purchasers, what cohort of them is coming back to purchase those versus not. It's a really good way to, to look at that test. So you've seen, you said it's maybe as simple as taking a giant step back and looking at this a little bit from a, a blown up view here. So then let's, let's do that. What does success look like then? How, how do you set goals and how do you keep testing these things and collecting data and analyzing this data to then determine that these tests are working? Yeah, well, I think it all starts with data cleanliness. You can't manage what you can't measure. And so most merchants that come to us, we start there in the first month. We try to make sure that we're tracking against all the right things we're supposed to be tracking on, that systems are set up right. So it might be that we're living inside of GA doing cleanup before we're actually doing any kind of real experimentation. So I think that, you know, that's how we first start. And then I think 
we dig deep with the merchant to try to understand their business. What's their business model? Are they selling a high AOV item? Are they selling a lower AOV item, but that has a repeat purchaseability? Are they selling a one-time membership or a course, right? Or something like that. So I think data cleanliness is first. Second is really trying to get a grasp of the business model itself. And then from there, everything else is pretty easy. Anything to add on to that, Yusuf? Yeah, one of the things that, you know, we like to set expectations with new merchants that we work with is that, you know, success doesn't just look like trying to be your competitor. Success is looking at yourself and trying to look and perform better than you were yesterday. And so that's kind of how we try to define success and, and instill that with our merchants that we work with. There's certainly ways that we want to be competitive in the market. But then beyond that, the only way to truly lead is by not following a broken path already. And so we really try to find new opportunities, try different things. And testing helps us do that in a way that's validated because it's unfortunate, but sometimes your competitor might launch things on their site that look really pretty, but might actually be hurting performance. And we know because we've launched pretty things for, for clients before that were data backed. Then when we launched them and ran a test, we found that they hurt performance. So we took them away. And so hopefully none of their competitors were copying, or maybe hopefully they were. We always see interesting stuff like that. And sometimes some of the things that we find work or don't work really blow our mind as even if we have all the data to back it up or support it. Also a mindset shift in how you approach your business to truly actually be data-driven. Like sure, you might've spent $5,000 on a new you know, product page design, but if you launch that and the core metrics tanked, sorry, you know, you got to go back to the original and getting rid of that sunk cost fallacy is really important you know, to actually achieve success. So I'd, I would say that the most successful merchants we've worked with also have the right mindset on this stuff, a tested learn mindset. Quick sidebar, define sunk cost fallacy for us. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I was just having this conversation with a friend over the weekend, but de define it in, in your terms to make it clear for e-commerce merchants. I have a really great example. You go to an expensive eight course dinner, it's $600 and everything on the menu tastes awful and you leave a five-star review because you just couldn't get over the fact that you spent $600 on that dinner. So you leave a five-star review. That is some cost fallacy is that you want to sort of justify the money that you've spent by keeping it, even if it doesn't work. You see, and if you want to add to that, but that's, that's the example I always, get. that's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. I think that example is perfect. The gist of it is cut your losses, move on and on to the next thing you know, sort of, if, if an initiative didn't work out, you can't change the past, but you can change the future. And so don't just leave something there, iterate, keep trying. Perfection doesn't exist at all, like in anything. And so just cutting your losses, I think. Love it. So when we, when we talk about iterating and testing and all this, list out a couple things that you do iterate and you can test on. I know obviously the website's one of them, but rattle off a couple things that you think are worthy of testing. I think experimentation can be found across really anything as it relates to, let's say, an e-commerce brand. You've got to have rigorous experimentation in your creative on paid media for sure. You have to have rigorous experimentation with the site structural website experience. So what does that experience look like for a new visitor versus returning mobile versus desktop? You have to take your email list, rigorously experiment on that. Uh, and I would go so far as saying even the post-purchase 
customer experience, like packaging, you might even try creating different packaging experiences down to that level. So I think from when a customer finds out about you all the way until they get your product, I would say wherever you can implement experimentation matters a whole lot. And I think for most merchants these days, at least this is our opinion that maybe it's biased, but there seems to be the biggest miss on experimentation efforts with the website. A lot of these other tools have made it easy to iterate in these other areas like email or paid media, for example. But I think the industry is still a little bit behind on being able to kind of rapidly iterate their actual site. And there's a lot of exciting things happening in the space around even development and design, making that more frictionless. I need to do an episode on packaging and shipping. That was one of the first things I learned coming into e-commerce and specifically subscriptions. And it's a stat that stuck with me the whole time, but package delivery is the only touch point that 100% gets opened. It's the only touch point that everybody sees all the time, 100% without fail, because it's your package is the thing you want. People miss text, they miss emails, they miss pop-ups on the website, they miss all those kinds of things. It blows my mind that people don't test more with the actual packaging, the box, the product, the shipping speed, the the experience of opening it, user-generated content of filming these, like all of that kind of stuff. I need to do an episode on that later. Maybe that'll be uh, your third episode. We'll do that next year at some point. Bring some case studies maybe for it. Yeah, I mean, there's really cool stuff with inserts you can do and handwritten letters. I mean, there's like machines that handwrite letters for you in mass. There's a lot of really cool stuff. Again, samples. I, I haven't thought about that stat before, but like 100%. It was like 100% will be right. But yeah, that's a really good point. So the final thing I want to do with you today, and I know this is going to be kind of the meat of what we talk through, is I know you have really kind of like three steps. I know it's a lot more steps in practice, but we're we're dialing this down to do some so three steps put in practice to how you can rigorously test all the things you're doing. So you've seen, I'll kick it over to you and I'll let you kind of walk through these steps and then we'll kind of talk through some of these. So I would look at it as really important pro tips to consider as opposed to chronological steps. The first thing we tell merchants is to optimize for high revenue, not simply convert rate, as we talked about. There are a myriad of examples with that. And probably one of the best is subscription versus first time or, or one-time purchase. And I'll let Yusuf kind of speak about that as well as maybe also free shipping testing. Those are two really good examples that summarize that point well of optimizing for higher revenue, not just conversion. Yeah, totally. So on the first one, so let's say you have a consumable product. You have any form of consumable product it is worth your while to offer subscription for it. The idea is, okay, it's a snack bar. Someone's going to consume that. Or it's a cleaning product. Someone's going to consume that. Now they're out, they need more. That's something that you should offer a subscription for. And so once you offer that subscription, the idea there is if you start to test defaulting to subscribe and save, you could find, and we, and we do this often, right? If there's you know, A, let's, let's add subscription, but then B, let's test to see if the defaulting to subscribe is a more advantageous consumer experience if that's what people would prefer and then they can switch to one time if they want. So we've run that test quite a bit, making it very clear if you're subscribing or purchasing one time. And we almost always find two things. Every now and then these change up, but we almost always find that your conversion rate will go down because it's a larger opt-in to subscribe. But your lifetime value of that customer it always actually, every single time we run it, has shot up. 
there's been one time, which was the exception to the rule, where conversion rate actually increased when we defaulted to subscription, which was a fun one. Not only that, but also lifetime value obviously increased a lot more. That's kind of one that, that we sort of often turn for. And then what was the other one you've seen? How about free shipping testing? I think that's an interesting example too. Yeah, that's a great point. When we're testing free shipping, let's say you've got free shipping that is over $50 and you get free shipping, right? That's your threshold. One of the things that you should consider when you're offering that free shipping threshold is that if you're giving people that, there's this sort of trade-off between conversions and your average order value of your basket size. And so what happens is, let's say you don't have much messaging or maybe it's, it's messaging in a couple places and you wanna add a bar into your cart. So that bar is gonna call it out, gonna tell people when they hit free shipping or if they're $10 away from free shipping. It can be really helpful once it tells people, hey, you've got free shipping, go and check out. So that's gonna increase conversion rate for people that have a cart size of $50 and up. But the downside is that people for cart sizes $50 and below, it could actually decrease their conversion rate because now they're going to see, well, I've only spent $40. I'm just going to leave and come back and maybe I'll figure this out later. And so you often might see conversion rate drop if you introduce a message like that. So you need to account for both the combination of conversion rate as well as AOV. And sometimes what we do is we'll look at how those different cohorts perform, right? What is the performance for AOV and conversion rate for folks under $50 and then for folks over $50? That way we can see how each cohort's behaving and decide if we should adjust the messaging for them. Maybe rather than saying, hey, you just need to get to free shipping, you need to get to $50, maybe we'll tell them, hey, you've qualified and you've got a free sample or something. So at least there's some benefit in that cohort. And now you could bring your conversion rate back to um, a normal range, if you will. So ultimately, we don't care necessarily about conversion rate or AOV. It depends on the situation, but ultimately we're paying attention to overall revenue. And so like Yassine said earlier, the best way to have amazing conversion rate is make your products free. Conversion rate's gonna shoot up, but now you're not making any money. Adversely, if you increase your pricing, you're gonna make more money. The problem is not necessarily because what if fewer people purchase? What if only half as many people purchase, but you've increased your prices by only 10%? So the question is, what is your overall net gain? And the free shipping test is a great example of all those different levers at play. So conversion rate then, sometimes, I'm not going to say blanket statement, but conversion rate kind of could be a vanity metric at some point. Like if you have a thousand people convert, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. But like you said, if your product's free, you're making zero dollars. So there's exactly. definitely a balance in there of do you optimize for the higher dollar value? Do you optimize for the higher conversion? And I'm sure that there are, there are cases to make for each. I love that example, Chase. And something I kind of mention to merchants often is that let's say you have your website and you do nothing to it. And a day later, you adjust your advertising targeting and you target a worse audience. Maybe it's a broader audience or a new market and you find your conversion rate drops. Well, did your website perform worse or did your advertising perform worse? And so if you simply use conversion rate to gauge how your website's doing, you're not really telling the whole picture. And so that's kind of also why testing is the only way to determine if something's working or not. Because if you deploy something, it's really not clear whether or not that was your advertising spend changing, whether that was your email efforts, influencers. So the only way that we're able to accurately say with certainty if a change 
have an impact or doesn't have an impact or is hurting performance is if you're running a split test and sort of siphoning out 50% of traffic to give one experience and then giving another to another set of 50%. Now it's just variables. So now you're saying, you know, there, there are probably six or eight or 10 or even more variables for every purchase, for every person at any point in time when they're on the website. If conversion rate goes down, you can't simply look at like, oh, well, this button's now blue instead of red. That's the reason why. There's a lot of more context other than that. A hundred percent. And we're actually doing some really cool stuff now to try to help merchants identify and correlate back to multiple changes and be able to identify what's actually helping performance. A lot of that's kind of behind the scenes, but hopefully here soon, both with machine learning and AI and the advances there, there's a lot that we're able to do and unlock with being able to analyze data and sort of bring that forth to the masses in a really easy to understand way. So the second main thing we think about is how to tailor the experience to better performance. As a general rule, the more unique that experience is for each buyer, you're going to see a lift. So Yusuf, why don't you talk about maybe personalization within this fashion industry? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the simple example there is that not any two people are going to dress the same. So if you have Generally speaking with fashion, you might have an item that comes in 10 colors, maybe 10 sizes. Well, now you've got a hundred SKUs for that one product. And the question is, which one do you show to each customer? Because there's only, generally speaking, there's only going to be one color that they might be shopping for. If let's say they're coming in looking for a black dress. Well, now you've limited that by 10. And then if you know the person's size based on previous orders, or at least could recommend the right size for them, now you can personalize that even further. And so you've gone from a hundred possible options down to one. So the kind of nature of personalization is that you want to figure out what someone is looking for and then start to hone in to show them that. Where you want to avoid getting too into the weeds is you want to avoid over-personalization or locking them into an experience. So think Netflix, if you were to watch a show about basketball, and then all Netflix ever recommends to you is basketball shows, even though you love true crime. I know you've seen love some, some true crime. So uh, that's kind of the idea is you want to make sure that you still give someone options and that you don't sort of hyper-personalize right out the get-go and give them sort of outs. So maybe today I'm shopping for myself, maybe tomorrow I'm shopping for my wife. So how do I still find those other options on the site as needed? There was a there was a really good example we had from a hair extension company where Yusuf and the team had ran tests around color, being the idea that okay, well, what if you know somebody's hair color doesn't really change per se? So if you could figure out that hair color right when they hit the site, you can then change all the product pages accordingly to really limit that friction because otherwise there's maybe thirty different color skews on the product page, right? but their hair color doesn't really change per se. Exactly. That's a great example. Another one is like makeup, where if you know someone's skin tone, then you can start to adjust, again, what shades you show someone. You can even go so far as adjusting which models you show on the site. So if you're shopping plus sizes versus you know petite sizes or kids, now you're seeing models that are wearing outfits that kind of resemble your own appearance. And, and sometimes where it could be an appearance that someone is going for, and so there's sort of pretty easy, clever ways that you can do that and help give someone an experience that they're looking for. Give us an example of a way or two 
to land on that decision right there. I know they're like an onboarding quiz is probably the most popular one. I know a lot of people have heard about those kinds of things. Can you track like a filter for something? Maybe like they chose my skin tone is this. And as soon as you filter for all of those skin tones, now you're updating all the product pages to show those skin tones. Great question. Yeah. So the simple way, there's a simple way and there's a complex way. I'll give the complex way briefly in a second, but the simple way is just ask, right? As soon as they get to the website, have, like you said, a quiz or a pop-up with a question that just says, hey, we just want to capture some details to improve your experience, right? We want to show you the right things and be open and transparent about that. You don't want to sort of make it seem tricky or behind the scenes. So be open and transparent. Hey, we're asking this so that we can improve your experience so that we can show you what you want to see. And so the more complex way is identifying all the areas where you already ask that. So like you said, you could have a quiz already. You could have blogs that talk specifically about brunette hair. And so being able to target that as sort of a soft signal versus maybe a purchase, you might consider a purchase of brunette extensions as a hard signal. And so all of those you can sort of categorize into soft and hard signals. And then based off of that, whenever you have, let's say a collection page, you can apply the filter automatically. And it could say, rather than just saying, hey, the filter's been applied, it could say, hey, based off of your previous history, this is a filter that we recommend setting. Or it could be, hey, based off of purchase history or based off of shopping behavior. So kind of surfacing that up in, to them in a non-creepy way. Again, you can go quickly from 100 SKUs down to two, which, you know, when you're getting to that level, that's where you start to even skip the pages where you might have to ask them that. Or on the product page, you might not even have to show them the color swatches. That could be, there could be 50 color swatches, but now you might be able to limit that to only one, but then they're just have an option next to it to change in case you got it wrong. And then we'll test, hey, do we pay attention to only hard signals? Or do we pay attention to soft signals as well? Like if someone just happened to click on an image with that hair color, for example, we're finding more and more that merchants are moving toward creating profiles. And so anytime you can take those signals and merge those into what I like to call sort of like a personalization profile, almost like an account profile, if you will, where people are giving you that information because they know it's going to improve their experience. That's kind of the best place to be in versus trying to do it covertly, which can sort of borderline on you're collecting my data without my permission and I don't appreciate it. And now it's, now you're showing me something and it looks creepy, right? So you want to sort of avoid that, be open and transparent about it and people will appreciate it and they will, they will like the experience that they're receiving because of it. So speaking of being open and honest with everybody, let's get to our final pro tip. So the final pro tip I have is very simple. Experimentation and broadly conversion rate optimization is as easy as figuring out how to be the most helpful to your customer. It's not about tricky tactics to kind of squeeze out a sale. It's about being helpful. And I have two good examples of that. We were talking to an electric bike company and their AOV was probably, let's say, $2,500. So wow. not a cheap item. And on a website like that, I don't know if you've ever been on a on a biking website, but it can actually be pretty intimidating. There's all kinds of different options and settings. And as somebody myself, if I were buying a bike on the website, I wouldn't know which direction to take. And so charting ways with $2,500, but I'm not crystal confident in the item I'm getting, it's a pretty big ask. 
But then I noticed that they had a call-in system on the website where you should actually talk to a real representative who was trained on how to help you select the bike. And so I asked, okay, that's interesting. When somebody calls in and talks to a real person, what is their conversion like? Do people buy after that? They're like, oh yeah, actually people will buy at a rate of 30 or 40%. And so I said, okay, if we're going to help you with experimentation, success is not, how do I add the car? Success is how do I get people on the phone? And so sometimes it just takes a big step backward to say, what would be most helpful to a customer? And you yourself can even try to get your friends or people you know to go through the website experience. Try going through it yourself even, and you'll start to get the answers you need. The second example I have is from a medicine company. On their website, they're pushing add to card, but think about it, right? If you have a headache or somebody you love has a headache, medicine is an urgent thing. You kind of need it now. You can't wait three to five business days of shipping, right? So they have store locator, very small in the top right corner, where on the hero banner, they have, you know, shop now. In reality, should those be switched? Should our experimentation efforts be more focused on driving people to, you know, kind of in-person location experiences? Uh, like getting it from your local target or something like that. And so those are two very good examples of zooming out, focusing on the big picture. What does a customer actually need? And it's not so obvious that it's always add to cart. It might be something a little bit deeper than that. One piece of recommendation we give a lot of merchants, but what we do internally is we, we try to always place an order for the product to just kind of see the experience for ourselves. And we pick out something in mind that we know we want to purchase before we ever start going through the website. So that way we're kind of experiencing as a brand new user, how it is to find that item, how it is to go through the experience. Oftentimes in the companies that we're in, there's folks that might not be visiting the website every day or paying attention to the website every day. So find those folks, give them a budget or a card and say, I want you to purchase X, Y, D item. Maybe it's one of your best sellers. Maybe it's not one of your best sellers and watch them navigate. Don't say a word, just see how their experience is. And then just tell them you can have it for free. Just give me 10 items on, you know, things that you weren't expecting or things that were really nice. Um, so you want to pay attention, not to just what doesn't work, but also what works or what's nice and pleasant, because sometimes those nice things and those pleasant things are what you want to try to enhance or even do more of versus the things that were unexpected or maybe were a surprise or maybe were not even commented on. Maybe if they never comment on the packaging, maybe that's an area to improve where if they start commenting on the packaging, now all of a sudden it's like, hey, sweet. They're more likely to come back and place a second order because that increases the perceived value of the experience and the product. We had an oddly uh, math-focused episode here today. Yeah, I mean, I mean, conversion rate and, and all these kinds of things have a natural math element to them, but you're right. I mean, there's not always a clear do this example. Sometimes it's a don't do this example, or there's always kind of blending in between of like that piece worked, but then it brought me to a weird page. So you have to kind of clean that up. So it's all variables. It's all testing. It's all making sure that you can run enough people through the experience to figure out, does this work? Does this not work? Where can we optimize this? Where can we not? So it's, it's a very interesting, very interesting conversation. I'm sure you guys can talk forever on this, but I want to close out with a new tradition that we're starting on the podcast the previous guest is going to write down a question for the next guest. So we're going to kind of keep this transition going. Some are e-commerce focused, some are not. This one happens to not be e-commerce focused, but trying to just keep a running thread throughout the entire conversation throughout the whole season. So 
Closing question is, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you choose and why? That's a great question. Any ideas you said? Part of me is like going back to, you know, good old USA. But also if I had to move somewhere, maybe I would go with Dubai or Puerto Rico. And I'll just say, if you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would probably go to, I'd probably go to Southern Italy. I mean, we, we were just there on a trip, Issa and I both, and it was super pleasant. Everything was, it was like living in the past in a way, like everything was so much older and you could tell that there wasn't this, I don't know, it was just very focused on like the nature and the, and the, and the beauty of the place per se than it was anything else. And being in the industry that we're in, that is a very comforting thing. Like Yusuf's joked about wanting to live in the mountains, but I actually am very much like, I think that that's not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's really my true answer. Is like, as far as I can get from anything digital, as long as I have an internet connection. You know? <laughs> I'm almost surprised your answers weren't, uh, let me pick somewhere to live three months at a time. And then after a year, I'll analyze what makes the most sense and do some A-B testing and then move there. I used, I genuinely used to say that, but that was before I got married. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Yusin and Yusuf, thank you guys so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Likewise. Thanks for having us. We'd like to thank Yasin and Yusuf once again for joining us. If you're interested in PrismFly, you can head over to prismfly.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from and check us out at rechargepayments.com slash hit subscribe for our latest episodes.